listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, I want to talk about our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for all of your support. Your support through these years have kept us coming back, and we could not afford to do this without you. Thanks to each and every one of you. Also, if you would like to become a Patreon member, head on over to patreon.com slash Ohio Mysteries. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Ohio Mysteries. And consider becoming a supporter for as little as a dollar. Another great way to help us is to share our podcast with your friends and family. Leave a fantastic review, and that's all we ask. So let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Tonight, we're headed to Kettering, Ohio a city in southwest Ohio's Montgomery County. It's a big city, 55,000 people. And back in 1976, one of them was Lori Jean Lloyd. The 14-year-old left home one night in 76 for a brief trip to a nearby store, and the darkness swallowed her. There was just enough complexity in her young life to make her a runaway possibility, which tempered police and media response to her disappearance. And her family held on to hope for years, especially after they thought they caught a glimpse of her in a documentary about young people living on the street in Los Angeles. Nearly half a century later, we still don't know what happened to Lori not even enough to determine whether she'd left on her own or was the victim of foul play, or even both. This is her story. Lori was born in Dayton, Ohio, on October 27, 1961, to William Lloyd and Anita Smith. She was the baby of the family, the youngest of five siblings, Her sisters were Joni and Susie, her brothers, Bobby and Jimmy. When Lori was still a toddler, her parents divorced. By 1976, her dad was living in California. Lori was living with her mom, Anita, on Annabelle Drive in Kettering. The 5-foot-2-inch, 110-pound girl with the brown hair and brown eyes was a ninth grader at Van Buren Junior High School. Her last night at home was February the 10th, a cold winter night. She was babysitting her two-year-old nephew, and a friend was staying with her. Her mom swung by the house to drop off a pizza for the trio, then left. About midnight, Lori decided to walk to a 7-Eleven on Wilmington Pike to purchase cigarettes. The store was just a half mile from the house. She left the toddler with her friend for what should have been a very short trip. She slipped a jacket over a sweater and jeans and left the house with nothing else but a little money for her purchase. When Lori's mom, Anita, returned home in the early morning hours of February the 11th, 
She found Lori's friend and the baby sleeping, but no sign of her daughter. Anita and some of Lori's older siblings spent the rest of that early morning looking for her, contacting friends, checking out known haunts. They learned Lori Jean never made it to the 7-Eleven. Store employees said they never saw her. At 9.48 that morning, Anita called Kettering Police to report her daughter missing. One thing that made it difficult to settle on a theory of what might have happened was that Lori had been a bit of a rebellious teen. She had left home before, though her family said it was always to a friend's house where she could easily be found. Her location was never a mystery, and she didn't even let these brief incidents stop her from going to school. Once, her mom called police to have Lori picked up at a friend's house just to teach her a lesson. Another time, Lori ran away and moved in with her sister, Joni Spencer, after her mom refused to let her paint her bedroom black. Sister Joni told a reporter they figured Lori was just testing her boundaries, showing her independence. And then there was an incident when she was 12. She slashed her wrists, and she still bore the scars from that. Her family also knew she had experimented with drugs. Some of her friends said Lori had talked about wanting to go live with her father in Downey, California. To some, it seemed more like a fanciful dream than a real plan, since she rarely spoke to her dad. And there was that one friend who said, Lori spoke of plans to meet a boy the night she disappeared, that the boy was going to take her to California. But that boy, if he indeed existed, was never identified, and Lori's father never heard from her. So initially, police considered her a runaway, and local news agencies chose not to run stories about her disappearance a pretty common editorial decision when the missing teen is presumed to have left on their own. An editor at the Dayton Daily News even wrote to the family in November of 1976, months after Lori disappeared, to explain their policy. I only wish you knew how many letters like yours we receive, the letter to Joni Spencer said, from worried parents and loved ones of young people who disappear without leaving word. The vast majority eventually turn up as runaways. But the argument for Lori not having run away is this. Lori had a little money in a savings account. She never touched it. The family couldn't locate a knapsack that had been in the house. But if she had taken it, what did she put in it? It didn't appear any of her clothes were missing, and she'd left her purse and private phone book behind, which seemed out of character. And though her history had troubled moments, there was nothing going on that night to suggest anything was amiss. If anything, her mom thought Lori seemed happy and was doing well at school again where she served as a teacher's aide and was involved in track and tumbling. 
Despite any challenges Lori had in her life, she remained full of fun and laughter, Sister Joni said. She was a girl who brightened their days. With no trace of Lori, the next four years passed painfully slow. And then this happened. In 1980, the family was watching a local TV station when a documentary aired called Angel Death. It was about the drug PCP, also called Angel Dust, and it featured a drug rehabilitation center in Santa Monica, California. In the background of one scene was a girl that looked an awful lot like Lori, not just her face, but in the subtle ways she moved. It was enough to cause Mom Anita and Sister Joni to grab a flight to Los Angeles to see if they could find her. The women searched for weeks, going to places where runaways were known to gather, including Hollywood Boulevard and Sunset Strip. But they could find no one who recognized photos of Lori. The folks who made that documentary, Dave Bell Associates, tried to help. But the girl in the background of that scene had never signed a release, and she couldn't be identified. So the filmmakers made Anita and Joni their next project, following them in their search. It resulted in a second program called Whatever Happened to Lori Jean Lloyd. It was released in 1981. The short film covered the perilous underworld of pimps and drug pushers and leaned toward the idea that Lori was a runaway. But despite that widespread attention, no solid leads came in. And there was little police could do. If Lori was a runaway, she was now 18, an adult. In time, the family came to question their original reaction to the girl in that film. Maybe it wasn't her after all. In 1999, 23 years after Lori disappeared, her family sought some closure. They published an obituary to mark the end of their long vigil and held a memorial service. We're not giving up hope, Lori's mom told the Dayton Daily News. You can never do that, but we need some kind of ending. Sister Joni said the family needed a chance to grieve and to validate Lori Jean's life. Sometimes it's like a dream, she said. Did we really have someone in our life named Lori Jean? In a way, we really wanted to celebrate that we did have a sister and that she was a part of our lives. Now, Lori would have turned 50 in October of 2011. On that milestone birthday, the family held a ceremony for her at the site of the former 7-Eleven that had been her destination that fateful night. Five years later, in 2016, her mom, Anita, passed away. There was one final twist in this case. Just after Mom Anita died, a Kettering detective called Lori's sister, Jean, to reveal some new information. 
He had tripped over a box in the office that held Lori's files and decided it must have been a sign to pull it out and have another look. That's when he found an old dental record of Lori's, a piece of paper that had become detached and its relevance apparently lost over the years. Now, armed with that record, the detective had grown curious about a case in Kentucky that had some similarities to Lori's disappearance. The girl in Kentucky had been found in Grant County in April of 76, just a couple of months after Lori disappeared. She was found nude, lying on the ground outside the city of Crittenden, about 60 miles from Lori's home. She was the right size, age, and height, with brown hair and a description of her teeth that matched the record on file for Lori. Unfortunately, the girl's body was buried in an unmarked potter's grave, in a field with at least 70 other unmarked graves. Kentucky police attempted to locate where this particular grave was, but they couldn't. And without a body, they couldn't positively confirm that Kentucky's Jane Doe was Lori Jean Lloyd. While Lori's family would like to have had that final confirmation, they don't appear to need it. Siblings have posted on social media sites that they are satisfied the girl is their sister based on the dental record alone. They are also confident that the coincidence of the detective finding those dental records just days after Mama Anita died is too great and that their mother had reached out from beyond her own grave to let her children know where Lori was. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And like I said at the beginning of the podcast, share our podcasts everywhere. We are currently trying to reach our goal of being the number one podcast on killerpodcasts.com, which we currently hold the second most listened podcast there. I know you can help us get there. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. I, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.